a process of mental development that you know goes under this bucket we call meditation. But meditation is a poison word because it doesn't it means something different to everybody. You know, for some people, just listening to Headspace for three minutes is meditating. I say no, it's not. That's just calming yourself down. So we meditate first to develop concentration power and attention control. Most senior executives have that, or executives or people listening to your body probably have a fair dose of concentration and attention control, especially military folks and whatnot. But it still needs to be trained. And we need to be able to like declutter our environment and be able to focus more and better on the right things. Welcome visionaries, creators, innovators, entrepreneurs, leaders, and growth seekers of all types to the Passion Struck Podcast. Hi, I'm John Miles, a peak performance coach, multi-industry CEO, Navy veteran, and entrepreneur on a mission to make passion go viral for millions worldwide. And each week I do so by sharing with you an inspirational message and interviewing high achievers from all walks of life to unlock their secrets and lessons to becoming passion struck. The purpose of our show is to serve you, the listener, by giving you tips, tasks, and activities you can use to achieve peak performance and pursue the passion-driven life you have always wanted to have. Now, let's become passion struck. Welcome to the Passion Struck Podcast with our guest today, retired Navy Commander Mark Devine. And I'm so thankful that you are here. I realize there are absolutely millions of podcasts out there, and it's so special that you are here week in and week out watching and listening to the Passion Struck Podcast. And because of you, we are now well over a thousand five-star reviews for the podcast. And I couldn't have done any of this without your support. It means so much to this show and helping us reach an even greater audience where we can share our mission of passion to millions worldwide. Mark Devine said in his book, Unbeatable Mind, for every mountain you climb and plateau you rest at, there will be another and more interesting view ahead. Most people think of mental toughness when they imagine a Navy SEAL. What they don't expect is this thoughtful, yoga innovating, joking and laughing professor of leadership named Mark Devine. After starting out as a CPA, he switched careers at the age of 26, graduating honor man, top of his class in SEAL Buds Class 170. Mark went on to serve nine years total on active duty and another 11 in the reserves, where he retired as a commander in 2011. After his time on active duty, he entered a period of seven years of incredible creativity, where he started SEAL Fit, a fitness company that prepares civilians for the physical and mental demands of Navy SEAL-like training, co-founded the Coronado Brewing Company, built www.navyseals.com, the leading website for Navy SEAL gear and information, and launched US Tactical, a government contracting business. He is the author of five books, including Unbeatable Mind, Staring Down the Wolf, Way of the Seal, Eight Weeks to Seal Fit, and Kakora Yoga. And in today's episode, we discuss a ton of topics that you're not going to want to miss, including how he was given the name Cyborg by his Navy SEAL teammates, the biggest lessons that he learned from Navy SEAL training, and his path that he took to getting him to the Navy SEALs. How do you disrupt your own self-narrative? The big four for tapping into mental toughness. How do you lead with humility and let go of that ego? Yoga, Ashtanga training, 
and how it develops mindset, mapping your five plateaus to living at your full capability. And we end on the topic of what is more important today for a leader, agility or adaptability. Such a great episode. So happy to have Mark on the show. Now, let's become passion struck. I am so excited to have Mark Devine on the podcast today. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. John, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Well, Mark, I wanted to start off because before the show, I was able to talk to not one, but three of your SEAL Team 3 officers who worked with you. And across all of them, they all told me the same thing. And that was within a month to six weeks of joining, they realized that you were just the superior officer in all ways. And all of them talked just so highly about you. And I thought maybe a good way to start this podcast out before we go into how you became a SEAL is how did you get the name Cyborg? <laughs> well, it was an appropriate nickname, I think, for me, because starting at SEAL training, like there was nothing that the instructors could throw at me that would hurt me or even cause me to show any sign of pain or discomfort. And so I I carried that into SEAL Team 3. And so my unfortunate Alpha Platoon teammates, of course, Dan O'Shea and these other just amazing people, they had me to lead them on runs and rucks and swims and, and ops. And I was relentless just at my in my pace and my ability to just go, right, without expressing any discomfort. And it was very good training for everyone. And I think it was a great example and model for them about fortitude and stick to itiveness. Now, where I got that, I, you know, I, I can speculate. I think it came from my abusive father. <laughs> and believe it or not, there's a lot of people in the SEALs who grew up with that, who had the same kind of re resistance to pain that I had. So I honor my father for that, even though I would choose different means for him if he gets another opportunity in his next life. <laughs> Well, well, I have to tell you, I grew up with a father who, as we talked about before the show, was not only a Marine, but a force recon Marine. And I have to tell you, he was to this point, probably the most disciplined human being I have ever seen. He is really the person who taught me that uh, if you put your mind to anything, you can make it possible. That is true. Um, so I want to explore that later on in our discussion, but I really want the listener or watcher to understand your path to going into the SEAL teams because you and I kind of did it in reverse. We were both, as it turns out, with Arthur Anderson. I think you were also with uh, Pricewaterhouse, mm -hmm. but um, I did it after I got out of the service and you were smart enough to do it uh, before you even went in. <laughs> so I spared so, myself the experience you had at Arthur Anderson by clawing your way to partnership only to have it stripped away from you as they took their huge fall after Enron. Yeah, so I... I tell this story in my book, The Way of the Seal. I didn't grow up thinking I was going to go in the military. So I said, my dad was kind of an angry, angry guy. In fact, he was in the army for two years, but he was in the army because he had a judge say, you can either A, go to jail or B, join the army. He goes, B. <laughs> <laughs> so he's in the 11th Airborne, which was kind of a misfit unit that was over in occupational West Germany. And so we were, the morale was really low. There was a lot of drinking and, you know, carousing and, you know, his two years was not very positive. And so, you know, the military in my town, upstate New York was kind of something you did if you really had no other options, you know, if you were down and out or 
And we certainly weren't a down and out family. You know, we came from a long line of a family business that had been around for over 100 years. And it was kind of expected that all the boys, anyways, in the family would go into that family business. And all of them have, but me. I've got two, two sibling brothers and a sister who are all in that family business, divine brothers in upstate New York. At any rate, so I was kind of marching to that drummer. I was like, okay, you know, I'm going to go into business because divines do business. They don't do military, they don't do academia. You know, the only other plausible option my mom thought would be worthy would be to be an MD doctor. At any rate, so I went to Colgate University, ended up majoring economics, which made sense, and did the kind of the interview thing at the end of my junior year and early senior year. And guess what? Lo and behold, my solid B average somehow led me to this opportunity with Coopers and Libran, the predecessor company to PricewaterhouseCoopers. And it was a joint program with NYU and a bunch of other big eight firms, like seven other of the other big eights where they had a cohort of 75 of us go to NYU together to get our master's in accounting. And the idea there, John, was that they were testing to see whether hiring a liberal arts graduate with no accounting experience and no accounting. We didn't even have any accounting classes at Colgate. Hiring a liberal arts grad and sending them to get the accounting education would um, foster a more well-rounded business leader at the partner level. And honestly, most of us moved on to other things. But I have to tell you, there are a few people who stayed. And one of them was my good friend, Carmen DeCibio, who is CEO of Ernst & Young to this day or at this time. So they were right in that theory, but it took a lot of culling through you know, a lot of people to get to that diamond in the rough, which certainly wasn't me. At any rate, so the long story short, I started this. I worked for Coopers for two years. During that time, I went and got my master's. Now, they, they allowed us to go to school full-time during the summer and then part-time at night during the fall and spring semesters and then full-time the second summer and boom, we had our master's. I, like a lot of my peers, converted that or, or rolled that into an MBA program because a master's in accounting wasn't really what I was in it for. So I ended up getting an MBA in finance, which took me another year and a half. And I also switched companies to Arthur Anderson halfway through. Now, all of that is interesting, sort of. But what's really intriguing is that I was an athlete. It's probably pretty clear, right? For those who know me as a Navy SEAL, most Navy SEALs are athletic and you know have a sports background. So I was an endurance train, uh, athlete. I was a triathlete and a, a competitive swimmer in college, and I was a good runner. And when I got to New York, this is 1985, and I saw all the, the white collar workers down there in their suits and ties, overweight and pasty. And I was like, that. there's no way in H that's going to be me. I'm going to continue training. Like, they're just part of me, my spirit. So you continue training. You're going to train for the rest of your life. You're never going to be like that. It's fascinating that that spoke to me that early in life. And so I had this regimen where I would get up in, early in the morning and I would go for uh, like a six mile run and then we'd go to work. And then at lunchtime, when everyone went to lunch, I would go to the gym and I'd bang out, you know, what we now call a high intensity interval workout. And then I had two hours in the evening where I had um, an opportunity or window between work and school for two and a half hours. So I had to be down at the World Trade Center at 7.30 and I, they would let us off at five. So I was wondering, what can I, instead of like going home and relaxing, like most of my peers, I said, what can I squeeze in there, you know, in the physical training department? And I was walking home one night down 23rd Street in Broadway, and I heard these shouts coming from the second floor of this building. And I stopped and I'm listening and I looked up there and it was a karate studio, Sado, World Sado Karate Headquarters. And I was intrigued. And I said, well, that could be it. I've, I've always been interested in that. 
And uh, so I went up there and I was just blown away by the energy and by the man who was the founder of this style of karate, Mr. Tadashi Nakamura. And I watched for a while and then I signed up on the spot and I started training with him. Now, where this relates to how I got into the SEALs is this. It just so happens that Mr. Nakamura was also a Zen teacher or Zen master, I would say. He's a Zen master masquerading as a karate teacher. He believed that the meditation and the spiritual development was equally as important as the physical and mental development. And that was cool. And that was new to me. And that was the first time that I experienced, and I know you're into Ashtanga yoga, so you, you understand this. That was the first time that I experienced this kind of integration of, of physical training with mental training using techniques like breathing and meditation, and also kind of this idea of spirituality independent of church slash religion. And it really, really spoke to me. So I just started on this path. I consumed everything I could. I started reading everything I could about Zen and meditation. And I started a daily practice of meditation to augment our weekly long sits, our hour long sits on Thursday nights. And then also we would go to the Zen Mountain Monastery up in Woodstock, New York for these long four or five day retreats where we do karate for a couple hours. And then we meditate for a couple of hours. We do that like three or four times a day. So, and I never stopped and I've gone deep into yoga and deep into other meditative practices. All of this started when I was 21 years old. I feel incredibly lucky, blessed, you know, fortunate, whatever, to have found this practice or, or a practice, a path to mastery when I was that young. And it completely transformed me. The first transformation came about halfway through that, that four-year period that I was in New York. So right around the time that I was shifting and I moved from Cooper's and Lyberman over to Anderson, moved from the master's into the MBA. And I've now been meditating for a couple of years. And I started to get like these, these signals from now what I call my internal guidance system, my spirit, if you will, saying, what, Mark, you're heading down the wrong path. And, um, and so I would ask, you know, I would think about that. And I had also started a journaling practice. And so I would be journaling and I'm getting these signals. And then I would ask questions. And what came to me was that I was not meant to be in the business world, at least at this point in time. I wasn't meant to go back to the family business. This whole thing was you know, not my story. It was basically a story that was fed to me by somebody else. And so the meditation allowed me to start to see, to start to disassociate in a good way from my thoughts and emotions and to be able to look at them and ask, is that really my thought? Is that really something that I truly believe in and I feel in my deepest depths of being is right for me? And the answers kept coming back, no. So that kind of led to my first early life crisis. It's like at 21, 22 years old, I'm, I'm thinking, holy shit, I don't know what I'm supposed to do in my life because what I'm doing is not it. And that's when I learned that the quality of my life would be determined by the quality of the questions that I asked. So I started to ask myself better and different questions. Simple things like, if that's not it, then what is? Who am I really? Who am I really? And I, le I later learned that that meditation itself is one of the most profound yogic meditations from Ramana Maharshi. So who am I? And so I started to ask that question. And the answers I was getting is, I'm a warrior. I'm a warrior. And then I started to juxtapose that with this deep passion I had for physical training, for mental development, for this warrior path that I was learning through Nakamura and Zen. And I thought, well, geez, you know, I've got some skills that make sense that this that I would be a warrior. And I'm inspired by that. And so maybe I'm meant to be a warrior like in a military sense. Because you know, you could be a warrior in any setting. It really is how you decide to act and show up, you know, to to take risks that that are challenging and uncomfortable and you do it anyways in spite of the consequences. That's really how I define a warrior. So I thought, well, maybe, maybe I'm meant to be a military warrior. Still 
hadn't thought about the seals. I didn't even know about the seals. So this is where synchronicity comes in because now I, I started to get this messages from sitting on the bench and reflective journaling. And I started to believe it and said, yeah, I think I am meant to be a warrior. Now, what am I supposed to do about it? And one night, again, walking home from work, I passed a Navy recruiting office and I saw a poster on the window facing out. It literally stopped me in my tracks. And the cover or the headline was, Be Someone Special. And it had imagery of Navy SEALs doing cool shit. And I just stared at that for like 20 minutes. It's like, holy cow. Yeah, that's because that's, that's before a lot of the books way came before. out. Yeah. Way before. That was it. And I saw that. You know, Of course, I, I could go on and on with the story, but I won't. Talk to the recruiters. They said, the enlisted recruiters said, you don't want to be an officer. You got to be enlisted. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to have a master's degree. So maybe I should talk to the officers. The officers said, you don't want to be a SEAL. Those, those guys are snake eaters and blah, blah, blah. And I said, no, I want to be a SEAL. You don't understand. <laughs> and they said, okay, don't get your hopes up. Right from the civilian world, we're going to take like one or two people this year, which is about all they ever take. Sometimes it's zero because, as you know, most of the officers come through the Naval Academy or ROTC, and the SEALs are such a small small group they only take about twenty a year. And so I was coming in through a completely different path through civilian route to officer candidate school with a guarantee to SEAL training. There's so many other cool parts of that story, but I'll just kind of pause there. So that's that's how I ended up getting in. I went from CPA. To Navy SEAL. And I will just say in November, 1989, November, 1989, four years after I graduated college and went to New York and started this process, I got my MBA in finance. I got my certified public accountancy certificate. I got my first degree black belt and I was on a bus to officer candidate school. Wow. Isn't that cool? That is very cool. And what an amazing story and, and path to getting there. I asked my father, why he became a force recon Marine. And he said, because they paid me $150 more a month. <laughs> if I would do that, then be a normal infantry grunt. So, right. so um, everyone's got a different purpose or reason <laughs> for being there, right? <laughs> I actually really wanted to be a Navy SEAL. That's what I originally service selected. But unfortunately, I had a number of TBIs playing Division One sports and mm. had a problem with vertigo. Bummer hypovestibular dysfunction. So uh, it kind of uh, took me out of being able to do it. But I understand that you were not only a BUDS graduate, but you were the honor graduate of the class of 170. And one of the things I always ask Navy SEALs who come on this podcast is going through BUDS and your active duty deployments, what was the biggest lesson that you learned from being a Navy SEAL? You know, there were, there were so many, but I think the biggest lesson for me that that started at Buds and continued on into the teams was that it wasn't about me, right? We call it the SEAL teams for a reason. It's not the SEALs or or SEAL individuals, <laughs> SEAL teams. Nobody can do it alone in the SEALs. And, and people mistakenly think, yeah, we're a bunch of individualistic badasses. And it's just not true. Like the reason that Buds exists is to select the next crop of teammates. And the instructors are beholden to the rest of the SEAL teammates to pick the right teammates to come onto the team. Incidentally, the reason that most people who don't get injured are performance dropped is because they fail that test. You've got to prove at SEAL training, BUDS training, that you're both a good self-leader, that you're a good leader of other men, or in the future women as well, and that you're a great follower, a great teammate. You have to meet all the three. And they don't state this. It's not even in their 
criterion. And if you had a, asked a buds instructor, he may or may not say something similar, but he probably will say we are selecting our next crop of teammates. So when I went to SEAL training, there were several reasons that I think that I was honor man in my class. So we had 185 seriously qualified people start training. You have to be you have to be a badass even to be standing at the front door of SEAL training, right? All the qualifications, all the medical, all the the training prep people now, like with my business SEAL fit, people, young guys train for five, six, seven years just to qualify and just to go to get a shot. They're hardcore. So we had 185 hardcore folks, 19 of us graduated. As you mentioned, John, I was number one, the honor man, but my entire boat crew, our small team of seven, seven of us were also standing there on graduation day. So seven of the 19 was my team. I don't think it's ever happened before. Wow. And it was because when I showed up, A, I had the presence of mind to be really non-reactionary, to take everything that was thrown at us, to be able to take a deep breath and you know, because of all the meditation to be able to like just pause and you know activate my deep diaphragmatic breathing and just look at it and be like, what can we what can we do right now that's gonna make the most sense to move forward out of this shit storm that they're they're creating? Because they're trying to cause stress, put us into fight or flight. So how can I keep my team calm and how can we together come up with a nice solution? And then we'll we'll find our way through this. And you know those skills, I, I teach those skills now. I call them the big four skills. And now that SEAL training is actually implementing the big four skills into their training to have, as well as the uh, Air Force Pararescue and some other units. So that's kind of a cool uh, thing to be able to help influence the next generation of warriors. But we we practice these big four skills, which are breath control, which interrupts that that knee jerk fight or flight reaction, followed by positive internal dialogue and and con- getting control of also the fear based thinking. And then, you know, leading to developing positive internal dialogue, which leads to a much more creative solutions and better performance because positive energy enhances performance, whereas negative energy degrades it. The third skill is imagery. So we worked as a team to visualize the win, to know what we are all commonly working toward. What does mission success look like? And the fourth skill is just chunk it down to the smallest unit that you can chunk it into and just focus on that. So it helps keep you really, really present and just target focused on one thing. And your mind's not trying to do four things poorly. It's just doing one thing really well. And your mind is not looking way into the future and thinking, oh my God, look at the totality of what we got going here. You know, nine months of training. How can I possibly do this for nine months? Or hell week, you know, how can I stay awake for six days and six nights? You don't do that. You just chunk it down to like, what do I have to do right now? Well, let me get through this evolution. They said, put this boat on your head and run up the beach. Okay. I think I can do that. (laughs) Anyway, so all of those skills allowed us to be very present as a team and to be cohesive as a team and to solve problems as a team and to get our ego out of the way. So we call it check your ego at the door and put your focus on others. And that one idea with a lot of little ways to train it or ways to look at it probably was the most profound leadership lesson that carried me. And what you referenced, other people saw in me that was different when I when they checked into SEAL Team 3 or I checked into SEAL Team 3. It's probably that, I think. That's great. It's, uh, it, it's interesting. I was listening to a podcast maybe six, seven <laughs> weeks ago, and it had Brent Gleason on it, who you, you might know from the teams, but he was talking about SEAL breathing techniques and actually credited you for uh, some of that skill set. The other interesting thing is I, a few months ago, had uh, Chris Cassidy, one of my classmates on uh, the program, 
And I asked him the same question. And he said, the first answer was that he realized that trying times end. And he said, they're kind of like a rubber band, but he gave a very similar answer to you. He, he said, if you wake up and you are trying to get to dinner, you're never going to get there. He goes, I was just trying to get to the next task. Right. And I knew if I could get over this one, I could get to the next one. Right. And then I could get to lunch. And then from that, and he said uh, that in teamwork really formed his career all the way till he was an astronaut. And he said what he learned in the teams was so valuable when he became an astronaut, because the, the two are very similar. Astronauts are trained very differently as are different SEALs who are on a team. So it's interesting, you and uh, another gentleman, Bob Adams, who was FUDS class 81, all gave very uh, specific and complimentary answers to that. Oh, that's uh, cool. Brent's great. I know I have never met Chris. I'd love to do a podcast with him as well. He's, he's one of my heroes. All those astronauts. are. I, I met Bill Shepard, Captain Bill Shepard, when I was a lieutenant, and it actually sparked my interest. And I actually spent a few months spinning my mind up thinking, oh, I want to go down that path to be an astronaut. The problem was I had an MBA and an economics degree. <laughs> I would have literally had to go all the way back to my undergrad and redo my undergrad and then get a, either a master's or a doctorate. And I just looked at that and said, you know, at my age, which to them was like 32, I was like, this doesn't really pass the, the reality test anymore. So I have to wait until I get invited on a SpaceX flight or something like that. But <laughs> Chris is a hero of mine. <laughs> Did you know that Forbes magazine recently cited that 70% of individuals who do personal development, masterminds, and one-on-one -on -one coaching benefited from better work performance, increased communication skills, and overall better relationships. And we at PassionStruck are obsessed with self-development, coaching, and mentorship. That is why we've created a free resource to help you unlock your hidden potential. Because people doing great things in business and life are just like you, only they've had a coach along the way. And we've got that covered too. Let us show you the systems and frameworks that we teach growth-minded individuals to help them step into their sharp edges, execute on their passion journeys, and get predictable results time and time again. Go to passionstruck.com slash coaching right now, and let's get igniting. Well, I wanted to kind of switch gears. I think that was a great backdrop for the listeners to kind of understand some of the foundation you had. What amazed me is how you left the teams, and not only did you found a seal fit almost in parallel you started one of the first restaurant brewery concepts in in coronado at the same time you start navyseals.com and at the same time you start a government contracting company i think for a listener who's on this show and many of them are aspiring, aspiring leaders entrepreneurs people who are trying to move their life forward just doing one of those things is daunting enough how did you manage to do all four simultaneously? Well, they weren't exactly simultaneous. They all came in, in about a five-year period of time that was like extremely, now maybe like six or seven-year period of time that was extremely creative for me. And so you have to appreciate what happens in when you begin to train your mind using techniques like yoga meditation, Zen meditation, and you kind of unlock like the the right sequencing, just like you have sequencing in Ashtanga or sequencing in in 
uh, martial art or sequencing in CrossFit. Meditation, I discovered, has a particular sequencing to it. And when you when you get the right sequencing down, you unlock progressively deeper capacities, more expanded awareness, more ability to focus and concentrate radically, greater insight and perception of things that you don't really have any business of knowing rationally, but you just know. You're tapping into transrational knowledge, intelligence that may be flowing all around you. And um, I just became, because of my meditation practice, which I stuck with you know, throughout the seals, and then, like I said, I've never stopped doing it, I was suddenly going from, oh, I'm a Navy SEAL officer, and I think I want to be an entrepreneur, to all of a sudden having this intense creative outburst of these, these businesses, these ideas, and that flowed into developing content, creating entirely new ways to train for the SEALs. And then obviously now for corporate world and five books, I'm working on two more now. And so this is a natural outgrowth because human beings have far more potential than they allow themselves or they even believe about themselves. We call it 20X. So, so I learned that I'm capable 20 times more than I thought I was. And then there's a 20X on that and a 20X on that. And I don't think, you know, I think it's virtually unlimited what we're capable of. That period of my life where my early entrepreneurial years were kind of that flowering of that expression of that 20 times potential. But the, the sequencing of that or the timeline of that wasn't all like I started them all together and they were all successful. So I, the first one was the Coronado Brewing Company. And I started that when I was on active duty with my brother-in-law. We launched it in uh, late 96 and we were profitable within three months. And the business is doing like 40,000 barrels a year right now. And it's really successful. Now, I I didn't do everything right with that. My brother-in-law was a really poor choice for a partner. And then he brought his brother in and I was too codependent to say no. And I ended up in a big battle for them because they, they, we just didn't share the same ethical code. So I ended up selling my interest to them, basically walked away from that whole thing. Well, about two years into that, not even two years. So about the same time I started that, I did actually start NavySeal.com, but it was just an idea. So I, I, I looked at the, what was happening with the internet and I said, you know what, I, I think I should I'd like to do a, a site about the Navy SEALs that could be helpful in recruiting. And the SEALs didn't have anything. I said, I would hate that a non-SEAL would do that, right? It's got to be a Navy SEAL that does that. And so I was able to register the domain NavySEALs.com for 35 bucks. And I had a, my graphic artist was also a web developer. And, and, and just an aside, I heard that is not the only domain you were able to obtain. I've got um, a few hundred, but if anybody <laughs> wants to buy a suite of domains, email me. <laughs> yeah, I, I heard you jumped on that one uh, pretty good when it happened and had the foresight, just yeah. as you did with well, the brewery. I wish I had got you know, a whole bunch of others too. I had no idea that those domain categories like business.com ended up selling for $6 million and I could have jumped on all those, but that was pretty early. But anyways, I got NavySeal.com. I still don't run the website. It's really more lead gen right now. Did a tremendous amount of recruiting and we had some cool success. Now, because NavySeals.com, we had like three categories, Get Seal Smart, which was kind of became the foundation for my mental uh, development program called Unveil Mind. Get Seal Gear, which is where we mo- made most of our money. That was like buying e-commerce, buying cool watches and stuff that- Tactical Seals, gear. Yeah, yeah, tactical gear, stuff that Navy Seals either created or used that wasn't at that time, early in the 2000s, it wasn't available at Amazon or wherever because Amazon was books, you know what I mean? And then it was- um get seal fit. And that, that became a separate business called seal fit in the get seal fit category. We used to do a lot of, I had forums and we used to have training groups and I did a lot of mentoring and we were having a lot of success 
with helping people get through buds. And so a little bit later on in 2005, as the uh, war in Iraq was ramping up, the Congress wanted to grow the SEAL force. They said, we need 500 more SEALs. And they were literally just going to like throw them into the program and force the, the, the SEALs to loosen the standards so we get the 500, which is what the special forces did. And it really hurt the, the special forces for a while. And fortunately, the SEALs pushed back and said, no, you can't mass produce Navy SEALs. It'll ruin the force. So we're going to take a, a number of different initiatives to improve the throughput or in other words, in throughput of SEAL training, or in other words, to reduce the historically high attrition rate of 85 or 90%. One of those initiatives was to create a nationwide mentoring program for SEAL candidates. This is before they even go to boot camp. And they put it out to bid on a government contract. And there was a pro- that was an organization that was already working with the recruiting command that they said, okay, you run this and then you bid it as a subcontract because we need experts to do this. Well, I learned of this and I put a bid in for it. And I'm just a small little NavySeal.com. I, so I changed, I did a DBA. I said, I'm now US tactical. And I bid on it, you know, given all of our experience mentoring Navy SEALs through uh, NavySeal.com and having success. The other people who bid on that were like SCIC, which is a billion dollar company, Blackwater USA, Blackwater. Or company, yeah, and a few others. And I won it. And these guys were Blackwater in particular was pissed because they thought they were entitled to that contract. <laughs> so I stood up the nationwide mentoring program. So that's how I got into government contracting. And, and I had one year in government contracting, John. So trust me, I didn't build a really successful business and exit. I had one year because a year later, by the way, we were a huge success. We took the pass rate on the screening test, the PST, from 35% to over 85% in one year, meaning- wow. When guys were showing a boot camp, none of them could pass the screening test. And yet all the recruiting districts said that they could, but they sent them to boot camp and they were gun decked. And so we turned all around and we were sending much better candidates to boot camp, which meant we were getting more through boot camp and then more through buds. And that program actually did increase the throughput by 5%, helping to improve the quality of the force at the same time. But one year into it, Blackwater had challenged the prime contractor, which company called JHT, saying that they had sized out of their small business status. And that challenge was upheld and the whole contract got thrown out. And lo and behold, the recruiting command resubmits the contract, the RFP as a full and open, any size business can apply. And um, Blackwater wins it. And and we were like, what? How could this happen? Like, we're already doing it. The recruiting command loved us. Fisk Norfolk, Fleet Industrial Supply Center Norfolk was the command that, that was managing this contract. And it just so happens they run hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of contracts through there for Blackwater. And Blackwater obviously was currying favor with these people. They were taking them out to dinner. Who knows what they were doing, right? I don't even mind saying that out loud because everyone knows about Blackwater, but they were doing whatever was, was pretty common in government contracting, which is kind of a fraudulent business. And so we were entitled to get a debrief from Fisk. They kept putting us off, putting us off. I had every one of my guys on non-compete. And so they couldn't go work for Blackwater. Blackwater was calling me. My guys were calling me. I didn't take Blackwater's calls, but my guys were like, we want to work. And so I said, okay, I, I will release you guys from your non-competes. Go work for Blackwater. And um, Blackwater hired every single one of them the next day. When I had my debrief with uh, Fisk Norfolk about a week later, they, they said, well, the reason that Blackwater won this contract is because their staffing plan was superior to yours. <laughs>
Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner. We at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things, and Indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities. From scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates, it's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees, and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers, according to a recent survey, say Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Just go to Indeed.com slash passionstruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at passionstruck.com slash deals. Now, back to passionstruck. <laughs> but they hired yes. every one of my guys. They, they did a, what's called a bait and switch, right? So they stacked their proposal with all these, you know, dev group combat vets who worked at Blackwater, but were fully employed. And as soon as they won the contract, they hired everyone in my job, everyone in, in my company who was already doing the job. So it was fraud. And everyone said, you need to fight this. And I went back to my meditation bench and I sat there for hours and I just said, you know what? My, my intuition is telling me not to fight this, but instead to find a way to train these candidates all soft candidates using the techniques that I want to train, not what the government will allow me to train, which wasn't much. And so that led to me launching SealFit, right? Within months after losing this contract, I had taken what little money I had saved from the first year and uh, I launched um, SealFit. And we had a training center in Encinitas, California, and we just launched the website. And so SealFit was off to the races. And that SealFit gained a worldwide reputation pretty quickly with our intense, you know, three-day, 50-hour Kokoro camp or, or Seal Fit Challenge camp, which is Model After Hell Week, our innovative training uh, programs called the Operator Workouts. And I had this 30-day Living Academy, which is like a American Shaolin monk kind of uh, training school where people would come and live with me and we would feed them and sleep on site. And we would literally train from zero dark 30 until 10 at night and sometimes around the clock, teaching them the full spectrum of physical skills, mental skills, leadership, teamwork. It was quite extraordinary. And that creative period there, out of those 30-day academies came the books, Eight Weeks to Seal Fit, Unbeatable Mind, some another whole incredible outflowing of creativity. So it also helped show me that everything happens for a purpose. Had I fought Blackwater, had I gone down the negative path, it would have sucked all my energy and all that creativity would never would have sprung forth. But I, I chose just to let Blackwater have their way. That government contract was never meant to be for me. I'm proud of it. And I turned all my creative energy on creating the next thing, which became seal fit. So that's a long-winded way to answer that. So incredibly, incredibly cool period. I still run seal fit and we're kind of doing a reboot on it now because it needed to be kind of 
tuned up after COVID-19 because we got shut down with all of our events. And so I'm going to look at turning it into a franchise model where Navy SEALs who want to transition and love training can have a franchise to teach SEAL fit in their neighborhood. So that's coming up for, uh, for SEAL fit. And then unbeatable is really going gangbusters in um, corporate training and team building. And so we're taking the same model of like, how does a Navy SEAL team think, work, and really adapt and overcome in volatile and uncertain times? And we're teaching business organizations that and how to grow and develop a team like that. So that's going gangbusters. Is that in some ways similar to the General McChrystal team of teams type of approach? Or well, is it, at uh, an organ, we're really working on individual teams. So we put people into what we call boat crews of eight to 10, 12 max. And then we have a certified coach who's fully trained and certified in the unbeatable mind process for integrated development, right? Integrated development, training, developing you physically, mentally, emotionally, intuitionally, and spiritually. And there's a lot of other tools. So we're focused on that. But in the organizational context, if we're working multi-year over year, yes, we would say then these individual teams would work with other teams in a team of teams approach. You know, So you'd have spontaneous collaboration and kind of loose lines of authority nearest to where the operations are whatever the battleground is for that particular company so that they can be really flexible and adaptable and malleable to be able to adapt to this quickening pace of life that we have right now. So a lot of businesses that can't you know, evolve to be more nimble and agile are going to get killed. Right? Things are just moving too fast for the old ways to work. No, you're absolutely correct. And uh, it was one of the biggest things that I learned when I was in Fortune 50 companies and it is so hard to turn that aircraft carrier. Mm-hmm. And the only way you could really do it is if you had an initiative and you put it into the hands of that small group that you're talking about. And oftentimes I found it worked best if you separated them completely from the campus That's so right. that they weren't, weren't having any distractions. But you have to have that leadership style where you kind of empower them to do it and then be hands off enough to just allow them to go do their job, similar to what you did in the teams. Yeah. So I, I know uh, another uh, friend of yours is David Goggins. Um, I'm a big fan of um, some of the stuff that he evangelizes. One of, I guess it's called Goggins Law at this time. He says that he thinks that only 30% of people are living to their full capability. I actually think Based on the research I have seen, I'm sure you've seen the Gallup poll that uh, looked at the billion full-time workers across the globe and found that only 15% of them are engaged. I think the number is probably less than that. And I By think far. we're, yeah. and as I was writing my upcoming book, Passion Struck, I kind of found three, what I call contagions, and I call them the contagion of the mind, the spirit, and the ego, said otherwise it's apathy, comfort, and showmanship are plaguing so much of society. And I happen to be listening to one of your podcasts uh, that you were doing uh, just recently with another SEAL retired commander, where the whole topic of humility came up. Mm-hmm. And I was hoping you could kind of talk to the audience. I, I recently did five solo episodes, all covering ego, humility, the need for diplomacy, why playing small is, is such a disservice to yourself. Maybe you can go through this in your five pillars, why we as a society are stuck in that first 
pillar of development and struggling to get to the fifth one because ego, indifference, other things are clouding our judgment so much. Yeah. So you're referencing, I think, what I call the five plateaus. And these five are, plateaus, yes. Yeah. These are kind of my version of a uh, developmental stages that uh, individuals can go through or do go through, as well as cultures. First plateau is the survivor. Second plateau is the protector. Third plateau is the achiever. Fourth plateau is the equalizer. And fifth plateau is the integrator. You won't be able to tap your full potential until you're operating at the integrator level. The integrator is someone who has developed themselves physically, mentally, morally, emotionally, and spiritually. They've cleared up all the baggage. They're not showing up with judgment and righteousness. They have literally checked their ego and trained their mind to open up to a lot of things. One of the things that they open up to is the vast potential of the mind. Another thing they open up to is this idea or this notion or this experience that we're all kind of connected. We're all connected. We've got the same similar motivations and fears and desires all on the inside, regardless of skin color or where we grew up. And at a spiritual level, energetic level, we are truly connected. So my thoughts, behaviors, actions have an impact on you and the rest of the world. And so you tend to make decisions that are much broader in scope. And I call that world-centric leadership. Like you make decisions that are not just good for you and your company, but good for the world, good for other human beings, good for the environment, et cetera because you recognize that everything is interconnected, the butterfly effect. So that's the world-centric leader. And, and it's estimated somewhere between 5 and 10% of the human population is there. And I think it's closer to 5, but it's, it's starting to grow fast. So it's possible within 20 years, we'll have 30% of the human population. That's one of my goals. In fact, my mission is to train 100 million people in these skills so that they can operate as, as world-centric warriors and leaders. However, we certainly don't have that now. And we certainly don't have that in America. We have roughly 15% or so are, are in survival mode. And, you know, These are the people who are victims or, or who are on the streets or who are broken, unhealthy at some sort of disease crisis. And there's a lot of people in our country who have are in that survival mode. And they just, it's like Maslow's Maslow's hierarchy needs. If you if you don't have your basic needs met, you can't really actualize. You can't move beyond. You can't thrive. The second level is the protect. Let me just say also, John, this is really important that there's no judgment to these levels. Like if someone's here as a protector, and like I've got protector energy, and because because sheepdogs and first responders and and military men and women, we're all protectors. So we have a, a healthy dose of protector in us, but. You can get stuck at protector and the, the people who get stuck at protector, again, doesn't make them bad people, it, but they thrive in bureaucracies. So a lot of government bureaucrats are protectors. Religion, you know, people who are really, really dogmatic in their religious structures are protectors. So they're stuck in there. They're not open-minded. So protectors aren't open-minded and willing to see things from other people's perspective, willing to accept that the other perspectives are valid, as valid as theirs are. So you see a lot of conserv extreme conservatism as in that protectors, a lot of people in that Trump kind of category who really supported President Trump are in the protectors. Not all. There's others that are achievers and even integrators that supported him because like, hey, he's the worst, the least best option in their mind, the least worst option. But anyway, so that's the protector. Protectors are probably about 20%. The third plateau is the achiever. The achiever is like the part of you and I that wanted to be a Navy SEAL. It's the part of us that wants to get a master's or a PhD or, you know, it's the part of us that thrives in corporate America. 
And so entrepreneurs and white collar professionals and executives, professors and legal and um, CPA technicians and all that, these are all achievers, right? They are out there building things, trying to make the world better, creating things. The shadow side to the achiever, if we don't continue our growth and move beyond just pure achievement for achievement's sake, is that that can be one dimensional. The ego can still be there, right? And so that's why you get things like Enron that we talked about. Enron were achievers, but they were in it for themselves and they were breaking the law, right? And they brought down Arthur Anderson as, as a result. So you have a lot of greed, you have workaholism, you have burnout, right? And you have a lot of acting over the past, you know, 50, 100 years and from achievers that have done serious damage to the environment and to the world community, right? And so achievers, being an achiever in itself doesn't mean you're doing world-centric good work. You have to continue to work on that. And I would say that we're probably 25 to 30% achievers in this country. The fourth category is the equalizer. And the equalizer is the person like the equality movement or everything that's going on now with racial justice. So equalizer really into social justice, equality, environmental issues. And so it's generally a higher stage of development than just the achiever. Now, like I said, you can have both. You can have all, you will have all of these in us, right? Because a lot of us listening are like, well, I believe in that stuff too. So I must be an achiever, but I'm also a CEO of this company. So I'm, I'm an equalizer and an achiever. True. You've got both. That's great. So let's see how we can move into the integrator. The problem, the shadow side with the achiever, or I'm sorry, the equalizer, which is the fourth plateau, is that it's often seen as my way of the highway. So this is why, why it's dysfunctional when you have the populist faction in the liberal party who are massive equalizers in such a conflict with the second plateau right-wing conservatives, right? Because they're, they're, they're operating from completely different worldviews and they're not willing, the plateau person isn't willing to look at the, through the lens of the equalizer and the equalizer is not willing to look through the lens of the protector who wants to protect the status quo, the equalizer wants to change it. And so you just get this stuckness, which is what's happened with our our political system. And it's really, really painful because there's no willingness for anyone to really grow out of their paradigm shift. And the only way you can have, you can move forward as a culture and really evolve to more positive culture and inclusiveness is to stop being so righteous and stop being so cocksure that you've got all the answers and that your way is the right way. And that's the shadow of the equalizer. So the way through all that is to evolve to the integrator, which is the, f- the first fully world-centric, inclusive care and concern stage of development that includes spiritual awareness, awareness that we have, we're spiritual beings having this human existence instead of like questioning it because you're a scientist achiever or not believing it that, you know, or believing that you need the church to find God, which is the protector. It's when you get to that integrator experience, you feel that you feel the presence of God inside of you and you see it inside of everybody else, regardless if they're a survivor, you know, at a survival level or an achiever level or, or an equalizer level. And so you, you, you begin to really open your heart and, and that also is experienced as more whole mind thinking. So you begin to think with your heart and you begin to think with your belly brain. And then you begin to think with your whole body because you're opening up to the experience of whole mind and integration. And so it really greatly expands your capacity to have care, concern, and understanding and perspective of all you know, humans and then eventually all sentient beings. That is profound. And as we get more and more human beings 
you know, into that integrator world perspective, that plat- fifth plateau, then everything will just shifting because the quality of the decisions that are going to be made day in and day out will be, be radically different than they are right now. And I have a vision, a very uh, positive vision of the future, because I believe that 20 years, we're going to have potentially over a billion people at this integrated world-centric perspective. And they're going to demand, they're going to demand the elimination of nuclear weapons. They're not going to say, wouldn't it be nice? They're going to demand it, right? And they're going to demand that we go all in um, healing the environment and making sustainable decisions across the board. You're starting to see early signs of that right now, obviously, but everything's still trying to be solved through the political structures. And it's really not how these are going to be solved. You can't solve this by throwing money at it. You, you know, you solve what's happening in the world by changing consciousness. Well, I think that is an incredible explanation. And for the viewers or listeners, if you want more information on this, you just did a great podcast on this recently that I happened to listen to before the show. So if you want 45 minutes uh, deeper, deep dive in it, um, it, it's a great episode. So I wanted to like personalize this point a little bit, and I've shared this story in the past, but I was a senior executive at Lowe's. I was mm-hmm. one step below a C-level, was told I was in the top right-hand quadrant, was constantly ranked at the top, thought you know my career was going gangbusters, and we all of a sudden had this third party that was brought in to evaluate the whole team because our boss thought that the team had an ego problem. And looking back, we probably did. I think it, it kind of ebbed and flowed. Like sometimes you were in a position to listen, sometimes you weren't. But I remember um, they brought in this psychoanalysis, a person who was a psychologist, and they did a psychoanalysis. And as I look at your five different levels, she said something that was so profound for me. And she said, you have fast-tracked your career to where you are now, and you've achieved so much in such a short time. But John, you're not going to get to where you're destined to go unless you start changing some fundamental things. And Mm -hmm. I remember listening to her because at the time, I was probably at that achieving level, maybe somewhere between the the third and fourth level. But I was still self-projecting more than I was doing things in service to others and the broader thing. And it took me really years before I really did the in-depth work that was necessary to get me to where I'm at today. And I, Mm -hmm. I would hope um, I'm at the fifth level, but I I don't know. You know, I think it's constantly a work in progress that you have to do. And we can get triggered down into earlier levels. You have a major injury or a life-threatening situation. Boom. You, you might be happily at fifth plateau. And then suddenly, no, you're, you're sucked down to first plateau survival. And that's a difficult situation. So like I said, the, they, it really is kind of like, where's your center of gravity most of the time, you know, 80% of the time, if you're 80% of the time acting out of your heart. And if you truly believe that all human beings have worth the same worth as you, and you truly believe in making decisions that are good for all and good for the environment, and you feel that it's not an intellectual mind candy uh, exercise, you're at, fit, you're at fifth plateau. I say that's, that's where you're at, that your work with passion struck, helping people find their purpose, doing things in service to the global community. These, these are all kind of signs. It, you know, like a lot of the, the entrepreneurs who are saying, screw it, we're not going to wait for government to solve these problems. We're going to build something that solves these problems because my heart goes out to humanity. That's, that's world-centric thinking. Yeah. So if, if you were someone in the audience and they're 
like say they're sitting at the second plateau or they're at the third plateau and they want to move up, what would be your advice on what's the first step? Because I I always say to me, it all comes down to, you got to make a choice. Mm -hmm. You got to do the hard work and you got to step, I call them the sharp edges, but you got to step into those areas of your life that scare you. And I think so many people don't take the time to do the self narrative work that they need. So what's your advice to someone on how you take that step? It really depends on, this is a very individualistic path, right? So if someone is really unhealthy, John, meaning like, let's say one of your buddies back at Lowe's was 75 pounds overweight or hundred pounds overweight, and they haven't exercised and, and maybe they're still smoking. They could be smart. They could actually be skilled in the, in the tactics of leading whatever it is they're leading, but they're not operating. They're in survival mode, right? They're, they're literally not able to access their full power or even their heart because their body is there is blocking them. So if someone is unhealthy, diseased, you know, has had a life of complacency, they need to start with their physical structure. This is why I put the five mountain training that we do in the order that it is, which is first is physical, then comes mental development, and then comes emotional development. Then you get into intuitive and spiritual development, which actually are kind of natural outgrowths of the first three. So you've got to get your body back into balance, which also gets your brain back into balance and get your heart, the physical organ, your heart and your gut, your biome, your, your heart brain and your, and your little brain healthy. And that has a dramatic effect on your moods, your anxiety, your stress levels, your sleep, and suddenly you're able to make better decisions. Boom, right there, you've improved your mental and emotional mountain, your second and third mountains. So you got to get physically healthy and don't have to go crazy. Just get yourself a fitness coach and a nutrition coach, dial in your exercise, dial in your sleep, dial in your nutrition, and then learn how to breathe properly. Breathing is massive. So we start people actually with breathing and then we get them dialed in and all those physical things. Then some people are listening to this and saying, okay, I agree with all that, but I'm a freaking CrossFitter and I've been doing box breathing for years. So I got that part. What's next, Mark? Great. A process of mental development that you know goes under this bucket we call meditation, but meditation is a poison word because it doesn't it means something different to everybody. You know, for some people, just listening to headspace for three minutes is meditating. I say no, it's not. That's just calming yourself down. So we meditate first to develop concentration power and attention control. Most senior executives have that, or executives or people listening to your body probably have a fair dose of concentration and attention control, especially military folks and whatnot, but it still needs to be trained. And we need to be able to like declutter our environment and be able to focus more and better on the right things. Second skill then is to develop what I call mindful awareness. And this is where you create a metacognitive capacity to think about your thinking. Now we can do this at some level naturally as smart adults, but then I'm talking about getting yourself basically up to PhD level where now you're developing an experience of I'm able to be in my contextual mind, which is right hemisphere. And I'm able to think and watch what's happening in my content mind, which is left hemisphere. And I'm able to choose content. I can, I can decide to kill off the negative content and the stories and the beliefs that aren't serving me. And I can choose to replace them with more positive stories about myself, my future who I am, and um, what I'm going to do about it. 
right? This is similar to what I was telling you about the process that happened to me on that Zen bench when I went from CPA to Navy SEAL. Like I, I had developed that metacognitive awareness to be able to think about my thinking and make better decisions and choose a new story. This is really the first step toward total freedom because you become, you're not a slave anymore to all that conditioning. I say, I tell my people, if you're not training yourself, someone else is training you and the world's training you and the results will prove themselves, which one's more effective. You got to take responsibility for training your mind and training the content of your mind and deciding what is a thought and storyline that is going to make sense for you and is going to be promote you into the powerful vision for your future that you have or that you can have. So that's kind of the second the mental mountain is opening up to that metacognitive awareness and then developing it further to awakened awareness, which I call witnessing. And awakened awareness is where now you develop the experience of I'm, I am the aliveness. I am spirit. I am. And you're able to have that. I am watching the metacognitive watcher, which is watching the thinking. That's a little probably esoteric for this you know, moment to go deeper in, but it is a natural experience of this meditative practice that we, we do at um, Unbeatable Mind. And then we also develop our imagery work. Imagery work is powerful because we can use it in a retrospective sense to look back at our past and recontextualize and change the energy of any childhood trauma that we have, such as like related to my father's abuse. I had to recontextualize, recapitulate, re-energize that with a more positive story and also with forgiveness. So we use imagery for that. And we can also use support from emotional doctors like therapists and, and processes like somatic therapy and whatnot. So now we're getting into the third, using imagery, we practice it in the second mountain, but it's starting to be used in the third mountain, which is emotional development. This is where a lot of people trip themselves up because it's, it's easy for people to think, yeah, I'm going to train my body, my mind, and that's good. It's going to make me more successful. But then at the emotional level, what they don't realize is they've got this huge ego or they're projecting all this stuff on other people and they're transferring their mommy issues on, on the women and, and daddy issues on the guys, and et cetera, et cetera. And that's all part of their emotional life that just that's hidden from them. That's why they call it the shadow in the emotional therapeutic world. So you got to start to clean up your baggage, your emotional baggage, so you don't carry it into the team room with you. And that's hard work. And guys don't like to do that. It makes them very uncomfortable. They think it makes them look weak and they couldn't be further from the truth. True humility is strength projected, not weakness. And true humility can only come from recognizing that we're all human and we're all flawed or we're all incomplete. And so really what we're doing is just removing the things that make us incomplete to allow our wholeness to, to shine through. We block, our, we block ourselves from being whole by, by these emotional... I guess, reactions that we have at a young age or some point in our life when we really didn't, we didn't understand what was going on and we miscontextualize things. So that leads to a lot of emotional problems and emotional patterns. My recent book, Staring Down the Wolf, is all about how I had to develop my own emotional maturity so that I could be a, a complete leader. And how a lot of the things that were disasters, like the Coronado Brewing Company, were because of emotional immaturity and codependence and things that I really dragged into my adult life from childhood. It had nothing to do with my SEAL skills. My physical fitness was awesome. My mental focusing power was awesome. I got the business up and running and, and successful, all the great, but it was the emotional piece that torpedoed me. So that's the third mountain. You work us, just work on those three in that order. And that's a lot of work, as you alluded to. It's a lot of work. So don't worry about intuition and spirit, except to be open to spiritual experiences starting to happen more and more frequently and synchronicity and 
the awesomeness of life and grace to start showing up, right? Because the work we're doing in the first three mountains will naturally be integrating us and allowing our you know, heart to open and like our whole mind experience is, is really felt as a connected spiritual being, you know, that, that starts to understand things from a really different perspective. So those kind of your intuition naturally opens up. And then the fifth mountain, we call it Kokoro instead of spiritual. And that means whole mind or merging your heart and mind into your actions. And this is where you, like you alluded to, you, you take cert, you make your whole life a service. And that service can be like as a gardener, it doesn't have to be he or, or just being a mom or dad, or it could be, you know, like serving a hundred million people or, or colonizing Mars, like Elon Musk, it's, it's a service to humanity at some level that is appropriate for you. And that's really the kind of the natural evolution that integrated level kind of opens up through that Kokoro heart, mind service action. But it can't happen if you block yourself because you're emotionally weak or unaware or you're physically and mentally shut down. Well, I don't think I could have done that segment any, any better if I studied to do it and then try to deliver it. So that, that was some wonderful words of wisdom. And I understand you're similar in your approach that I am. If I'm going to work with someone, I like to work with them for a year, but I understand you'll do an entry kind of 30 days of, of working with them, you know, with the goal that uh, they'll continue. But I don't think I sure as heck didn't realize how long it was going to take me to to do this self work. And like I've said, it's it's never ending. We've had a lifetime of conditioning, right? I'm 58. I started this the emotional part when I was like 32. I was drawn to marry my neighbor after Buds. So I graduated Buds in 91, 1991, and I moved um, to an apartment in Coronado. And my next door neighbor was Sandy. Chapman, who was a therapist. <laughs> and we just had wow. these great long talks. And she, I started, you know, we just talked philosophy and emotional development and, and life. And then I went on a couple deployments and, you know, lost touch with her. And I came back in 95 and I ran into her again and, um, or 94, ran into her again on the beach. And we immediately connected and we were married nine months later. And so by, by living with a therapist, you know, I was kind of forced to down this path. And uh, then, you know, I really got into it and I really saw the, the results start to show up. And I'm like, okay, so I've been doing therapy and EMDR and things like the Hoffman process. And it's, it's really, really important work. But like, you know, my point was going to be, John, if you're listening to this and you haven't done this work and you're 50 years old or 40 years old or whatever, that means you're, the world has been conditioning you mentally and emotionally for 40 years. And maybe you've chipped away at some of it, but guess what? There's a lot of work to do to, to unravel the false stories, you know, the, what we would call the false self in you. And that takes time. So you got to be patient, but it's very rewarding once you get in it. It can be a little painful, but once you embrace the suck of that pain, you recognize the, the benefit for opening up to, you know, the awesomeness. You know, the Buddhists say you, we have like 84 positive qualities to include humility that are that exists within us, but you got to kind of get out of your own way in order to let them exist. So you don't have to develop humility. You have to get everything else out of the way to, to let the hum natural humility flourish in you. Mark, I'm going to let you tell the audience if, if they are not familiar with how to contact you, and I'll put this in the show notes, what are some ways that they can do that? 
Yeah, I appreciate that. A lot of people like to read the book. Unbeatable Mind is kind of my um, the signature book, self-published. I'm actually doing another edition of that. I'll have done by the end of the year. The Way of the Seal is also another book that is uh, talks about this philosophy, but applied toward getting things done at a big level. And Staring Down the Wolf is the emotional development. And my podcast is called Mark Devine's Unbeatable Mind. So I have some you know phenomenal guests. That, that's where I, instead of me being the content guy, I get to interview other brilliant people and it's so much fun. And some like you, sometimes I do these solo riffs on certain topics like I did with the five plateaus. My personal website is markdivine.com, D-I-V-I-N-E.com. That's also overgoing an overhaul, but uh, it's got a lot of the general info there. And then the training at Unbeatable Mind, which is if you're looking at the video, it's got a picture of me staring down a wolf behind me. That training is unbeatablemind.com. And, and you're right. We do have a, I was convinced to put a 30-day course together. It's virtual, but you also can uh, plug into a live training with me during the month. That's like an introduction. And it's fi- a video that I lead every day that's 15 minutes. And then there's journaling exercise. So it's about 20 to 30 minutes a day. It's a really, really cool course. And I introduce these, those big four skills and how to develop mind power and focus power, all that. That's at unbeatablemind.com forward slash challenge. They can learn more there. Okay. And I, I'll just give a couple shout outs for your episodes. I love the one that you did with Ashley not too long ago, my awesome. buddy. Yeah. So if you want to hear about uh, career growth, that was a great episode. Also the one with John Foley, who I've known for probably 30 Blue two years now. What a great guy. Um, I've, I've got a great, great story about him in the Seattle Seafair. And I really thought you did a great job on the tap into your mental toughness episode uh, that you did the solo on. So Listeners, please, please piggyback off of that and check out his podcast because it's great. It's got like 1,500 people who have given it a five-star rating. I had one last question for you, and I don't want you to to go into a big in-depth thing, but I just want to ask you on this whole path to this unbeatable mind, do you think it's more important to have agility or adaptability? I think they're equally important, right? There's I'm I'm not a big this or that kind of guy, right? So agility is really the ability to adapt fast, right? So you can't really have one without the other. So you you have to have both. You have to be adaptable, but you have to be able to be to do that in a fast way. We in the seals we called it fast twitch iteration. I'm glad you said don't go into long dissertation because I could literally give you a whole mini class on this right now. But it's really important to be able to adapt fast to be agile and adaptable in today's world. But that's a skill that is not a hard skill. It's a soft skill. And it ha- it's an outcome of, of the training that we were just kind of talking about, that you become very intuitive and spontaneous. And when your team is operating at this level, at a, at a world-centric level, and we're all intuitive and spontaneous, you get spontaneous creativity. And so you get very, very fast switch iteration where you can adapt on the fly using the OODA loop. You have the observe, orient, decide, and act loop. And, and it's really, really powerful. And there's no problem you can't solve, you know, with this kind of thinking. Yes. Well, I, I, I know you and I historically kind of grew up with emotional intelligence, EQ, and I, I am just seeing more and more uh, that agility and adaptability quotient are as important, if not more important um, to yeah. doing this. Well, Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely one of my best podcasts I've ever had. So I really appreciate uh, you taking the time and providing your words of wisdom. Yeah, it's been an honor, John. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. What an incredibly impactful interview that was with Mark Devine. So lucky to have him 
as a guest on the show. And he had such powerful information today. And I hope you got as much out of it as I did. Now, during the show today, I also brought up a couple other episodes that I've done and referenced on the show. I want to bring those up. One of those is one with Navy SEAL and retired astronaut Chris Cassidy on the importance of being present in life. And also, I mentioned Dr. Bob Adams, who also is a Navy SEAL and became an Army flight surgeon before starting his personal practice in North Carolina, where he's a family physician. And you don't want to miss that one either, where he talks about physical toughness, what he's learned from 30 years of being a doctor, and how he's applied his Navy SEAL training along the way. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I'm so thankful for you all being here today and listening to this podcast and taking up your time with it. If there's a guest or topic that you would like to hear on this show, please DM me on Instagram at John R. Miles. Also, if you're listening to the podcast and you want to view it on YouTube, check out our YouTube channel at John R. Miles. Thank you so much. And remember, let's be passion struck. Thank you so much for joining us. The purpose of our show is to make passion go viral. And we do that by sharing with you the knowledge and skills that you need to unlock your hidden potential. If you want to hear more, please subscribe to the Passion Struck Podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts at. And if you absolutely love this episode, we'd appreciate a five-star rating on iTunes and you sharing it with three of your most growth-minded friends so they can post it as well to their social accounts and help us grow our Passion Struck community. If you'd like to learn more about the show and our mission, you can go to passionstruck.com where you can sign up for our, our newsletter, look at our tools, and also download the show notes for today's episode. Additionally, you can listen to us every Tuesday and Friday for even more inspiring content. And remember, make a choice, work hard, and step into your sharp edges. Thank you again for joining us. 